Welcome to episode 13 of On the Track with me, David Wilson. Please note, this is a two-parter, so if you're listening to this and you haven't heard the first part in episode 12, then I suggest pause, rewind back to episode 12, listen to that first, and that will put this in context. Of course, if you want to be a maverick, go ahead and listen to part two first. You'll be so in sync with my guest, Hal Bastian. Enjoy the episode. Please be aware, Hal is passionate, so he pulls no punches, talks candidly, honestly, and sometimes bluntly. But remember, the ultimate aim of this program is to inspire and to help you get yourself on another track. So you you must be psychic. I'll tell you right now. I'll tell you the reason why. You've answered most of the two pages of questions I've already got to ask you. So we've kind of skipped through all that very, very quickly. But I'm going to ask you a quick question, and I'm going to go back personal again, because I want to know, who was your first love? Tommy Keneal. Tommy was a neighbor, and we were, I think he moved to L.A. when he was like eight years old. And um, he became a good, good friend, and he was effectively my first boyfriend, you know? And then we went to different junior high schools, and I lost it, and uh, lost him. And, and then I just sublimated everything. I didn't have boyfriends or girlfriends or, you know, anything until after I graduated, after I graduated college. Right. So it, it was, uh, it was something. And, uh, he passed away of, uh, of AIDS in the, in the eighties, you know, every once in a while, I, David, I, you know, I'm looking in the mirror and I, I'm a very fit guy because of the exercise and I watch what I eat, but I do have wrinkles. And the, and the reason I have wrinkles is in the 1960s, there was no such thing as sunscreen, right? <laughs> exactly. our, our, our purpose was to get out this white fin, right? Uh, our purpose was to get out and get burned, you know, because that was the best base for a tan. And so, you know, my neck is sagging a little bit and I'm getting some crepe paper, you know, arms and and sometimes I get discouraged about that, but I have to remember that I got the luxury of aging because many of my friends died during the last pandemic of AIDS, right? Yeah, that's pretty tough. And by the way, listen, the world's been around for thousands, millions, or billions of years, depending on who you talk to. And lucky me, I come out as a gay man at the exact time as a disease is coming out and killing gay people. You know, thanks God. <laughs> but you're a survivor you know that's it you reinvented yourself and you got on with the and life. I, I survived that too you know i i became hiv positive in 1995 and so i have lived so much longer than i i guess i'm living as long as you know god wants me to but um that's another reason that i, I try to take advantage of each day is that um you know, it's it's precious. And and I mean, living with that diagnosis, did you see that again as the, the cloud and the silver lining? Did you say, okay, I, I've got a way of negotiating this yeah. and getting on with my life in a slightly different direction, or did it not change the direction at all? You no, thought- it, it, it gave me license to drink and use a lot more drugs is what it did. Okay. Because at the time, um, and by the way, I mean, the reason that I got infected was I was involved in like really risky behavior, right? When I was under the influence. So- so, and I knew better. Um, but at the time I was diagnosed, it was a death sentence. It, it still was a death sentence. And, you know, eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we will die. I mean, it wasn't we may, we're gonna. And, you know, I'd had many friends that died. And frankly, I think, I think maybe one of the reasons, I'm just thinking of this, that I wasn't more careful is I had a, an amount of survivor's remorse. Yeah, that happens to a lot of people. And also, I think there's always the risk again, because the excitement of the risk, and, and really not, I, I think this is, happens to a lot of people, is you don't value yourself in many ways. You don't think you're as good as somebody else. And so, well, this is going to happen to me anyway. Um, but but why did you survive? What was it that, that allowed you to survive? Well, um, you know, ultimately, ultimately, I decided to live because I was a failure at killing myself. That's it. I mean, that was it. I, 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 you know, I wasn't brave enough to hang myself. By the way, about three years ago, uh, a best friend of mine from college uh, hanged himself in his backyard. And, and last person on earth, last, that you would expect to, to hang himself. But, but you know, a lot... It, 
a lot of people who are, who are smiling on the outside are dying on the inside. And then, so when they kill themselves, people are like, what happened? Right. And so I wasn't brave enough to jump in front of the bus or jump off the building. So I did this other way. Right. And I was no good at it. And, you know, I have literally almost died eight times in my life, literally overdoses twice with the ruptured appendix thing. And then, you know, in sobriety, having a truck lose its load and landing, you know, one inch from my body, it should have tumbled into me, but it didn't on a country walk in Northern Michigan. Cause I go back to Michigan in the summers, except for this last year. And uh, it's, it's just phenomenal. So, you know, my, my view on life, the thing that I get the most satisfaction from is, is really helping and taking care of other people, being of service to other people. You know, I read this book, which I would encourage your listeners to read. It's called The Book of Joy. And it was a collaboration between this guy named the Dalai Lama <laughs> and, and, uh, and Reverend Tutu from South Africa, Desmond Tutu. And uh, the Dalai Lama invites Desmond to come up to his place and spend a week. And, you know, of course, they all have staff. And also an author came along to witness this dialogue. And I'm paraphrasing, but there was four things that really stuck out to me. And this relates to being of service um, in the book. And so the, the author, you know, organized this into a book. And this was kind of what the two of them decided. So they said, the first thing is, we, as human beings, we are happy the day we are born. Happiness is, is, is in us and it is with us. But we are taught by our parents and the society to covet certain things to become happy. So, you know, we, we're so busy seeking happiness or fearing the future or resenting people in our past that we can't feel the happiness that's within us because it's too noisy in our body. Correct. And, and someone said, well, what about somebody who was a, in, a, in a concentration camp? How could they be happy? And, said, and, and that's a legitimate question. Um, and this part, I don't remember where I, if it was from the book itself. And it's a little hard, hard for me to get my arms around. And it will be for some of your listeners too. But it was the people were happy that they weren't their captors. Think about it. The captors in, in you know, the captors had to do it because if the captors didn't do it, they'd be shot, right? So that part's hard, but just go with it. So you don't have to get the big screen TV. You don't need the Ivy League education. You don't need, uh, you don't need the European vacation to be happy. You're just happy. And, and I must tell you that um, COVID has not been difficult for me because even though I'm used to being out in the public realm and talking to a lot of people or whatever, uh, I do miss that, but I'm a cancer. I'm a homebody and I love being at home. And I've been at home with my dog who I beloved, you know, for you know, a year. So, so, and, and it takes absolutely nothing to, I don't have to do any of these things to be happy. And I told somebody, I said, I think I'm a boring person because of it. And they said, no, you're a contented person. It takes nothing to make you happy. So I think I have that leg of the stool. The second leg of the school is, is to be kind to other people. Be kind to other people. The third leg of the stool is to be of service to other people. And it doesn't matter whether you're uh, digging a ditch or you're the CEO of Microsoft. We, we are all servants. You know, Jeff Bezos is a servant to his shareholders. You know, so is Elon Musk. Um, be of service to other people. And the fourth leg of the stool is to be grateful. Be grateful for what you have. Because if you're not grateful for what you have, why should you get, you know, you know anything else? So my, my purpose and my happiness is caused by what I call spiritual income. And what I mean by that is that I, I'm not the richest guy in terms of my bank account. Um, I'm not even a millionaire. And I hang out with millionaires and billionaires sometimes. But they seem to respect me because the value that I bring is helping make all of them rich. For 12 years, when I was at the Business Improvement District, I created this tour of downtown Los Angeles on Saturday, put people on buses. So we had, we had you know, we had our, oh, by the way, downtownla.com is, uh, is the website 
run by the bid and it's a one-stop shop for anything to do with downtown. And I created a housing tour that I did twice a month on Saturdays for 12 years. Okay. Because I wanted to show people what this thing was called downtown LA. And I showed them the great, the good and the ugly. And I, you know, when I started being so open about my sobriety, I was in my first year in my thirties, I kept trying to get sober, but couldn't get it. And then I got some amount of time under my belt and I was talking to 50 people and I said, thanks for coming downtown. We're doing good things. We're converting, we're building new things too, not just adaptive reuse. And I said, and I'm going to show you everything about downtown. I'm going to show you the, the, the good, the great and the ugly, because we're going to see people dying in the streets today, literally. And the only difference between me as the executive vice president of the business improvement district that a homeless person, someone dying in the street is if I drink or use drugs again, because I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, but I got sober. So that's when I started becoming, being open about it. So it was early 2000s, right? 2002, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result of my openness, um, I've had many, many, many people over the years come up to me and say, Hal, I got clean and sober because you, you shared freely about it. And, and I knew you were asking me the question, what made it happen? You know, we all have to hit a certain bottom. And until you have a desire to quit, you can't. And so usually it has to get kind of dramatic. Well, yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right there because there has to be a, a reaction to an action. It's the yin and the yang, isn't it? It yeah. has to work that way, doesn't it? Yeah, by the way, I, I love Edmonton. You know, I got invited by Percy Woods to come up there and speak for BOMA. Well, it's interesting, actually. I was going to ask you about Percy Woods. How do you guys know each other? Well, he's retired now, but he was a member of, uh, uh, well, actually, I think he was worked for the Building Owners and Managers Association. That's right, and yeah. he, he was at an urban land Institute confab about urbanism and it was a convention held in Los Angeles. And in 2000, I think it was in 2015 and, um, or end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And he saw me speak on a panel about the Renaissance of downtown LA. And he came up to me after and said, Hey, can I get your card? And then I, I got this call on, um, it was July, I could tell you the exact day, July 21st, 2015. Um, my mom passed away and she'd had, she'd had a heart attack on July 1, 2015. We thought we were going to lose her. And then she made it through. And then she was in a convalescent facility, skilled nursing. And on, uh, on July 21st, she was on a treadmill trying to get strong enough to go home. And she said, I don't feel well. And she went down. My dad died of a heart attack the same way, by the way. And that, you know, so that's why I have a copper line in my, my, my place. I don't think I'm going to have a heart attack because I had less risk, risk factors. So I'm on my way. Check this out. She died at, at a little after 10 in the morning. I went 30 miles out to the facility to see Daryl. You know, he had, I was actually on a panel as it were in the morning and my phone and I, I spoke and then my phone started blowing up and I picked up and it was Daryl, my stepfather saying, your mom has died. And it's like, Oh, and I, I did really well at the moment of the information, by the way. Yeah. Cause you know, I'd been kind of preparing for it because of this heart attack. Uh, so I was real strong. And then later I wasn't so strong. And so I drive out to Chatsworth to, you know, be with her body and be with Daryl and my sister, stepsister, Daryl. And, and, um, my mother, by the way, was a very uh, regal woman. She was like, I don't know, she could have been a Zarina. And I was out there. So I told Daryl, I said, listen, um, my mother loved my exercise routine. <laughs> and I said, I can't do anything more here. Um, I'm going to go exercise and I'll be back to Northridge for dinner. And so I did. So on the day my mother died, that didn't interrupt my streak. I went to the LA Athletic Club and I exercised because that's what my mother would have wanted. By the way, I want to say something too regarding death. So yeah, and it, it, it can apply to, I started with it in regards to pets and dogs and cats and things, but now I apply it to people too, which is when you lose someone, grieve and grieve deeply. I mean, curl up in a ball and cry. But don't grieve for too long. And the too long is going to be different for everybody. I grieved for two years for my mother, right? Only child. And it really, uh, I didn't realize how bad it was, but I did. 
And um, she would not have wanted that, by the way. And but I it took it's this this thing of we, until we have relativity, we can't really understand. So I say, you know, grieve and grieve deeply, but not too long, because your, your your pet or your friend or your mom would not want that. And and then every time you start being sad and grieving again, say stop. Let's conjure up a happy memory of our our friend or our you know our beloved animals or horses or whatever. And so I have started doing that. And as you know, as we age, death is more frequent. And you know, uh, I even if I live to be ninety three, uh, well, I'll say when when I live to be ninety three, I still have less days ahead of me than behind me. So I cannot afford being in grief too much because I don't have as many days. And um, so that's my deal. There's a great book that was given to me after my first friend died of AIDS uh, in 1989. And it's called How to Survive the Loss of a Love. How to Survive the Loss of a Love. And it was given to me uh, in 1989 and it's still in print. And I would recommend, besides the Book of Joy, I should get commissions on this. Besides the Book <laughs> of Joy, I'd really recommend uh, that book. And I might have one more before we end. Uh, people should buy it, read it, and have it on hand. Because it's not just about death. It's also about losing jobs, losing relationships, you know, loss in general, and how to get through the grief process. And I highly recommend anybody that suffers a, a, a loss to get involved with grief counseling. I was like, man, I got this. Nah, not not so much. It's an interesting thought that you bring up, actually, because the the grief involved with the losing something or somebody very close to you is very much like losing a job, losing a pet. You know, it's it's those experiences in life that are very difficult for us to cope with because they don't happen very often, especially in young life. And um, I, I think you're absolutely right. I remember reading a book by um, Brandon. I'm trying to remember her last name. Tony Robbins. She used to work with Tony Robbins. I think it was, and it's called The Journey. Actually, I think I've got a copy of it. Bear with me a second. Yeah, here we go. This should have been a book review rather than an interview well, with you. Well, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> you know, on the, you know, when you do your links at the bottom, we'll put down the reading list. How's that? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So this is it here. This is it, Brandon Bay's. Okay. And it's called The Journey. It was interesting. I was at um, a conference here in Edmonton. Funny enough, I, I think Percy was there as well because that's how we know each other um, because I was involved with the BOMA. And we were setting up at the conference. It was an exhibition as well. And I actually had a lady, young lady next to me. And they were, I think she was originally from France, but she lived in down near LA, actually, in California. And we got talking when the conference goers were going in for their, you know, their presentations and what have you. And I said, you know, the thing is, there's two types of people in life. There's the givers and the takers, you know. And that's very black and white, a bit like your life. It's either on or off, you know, and that was the same with my life. And she said, you know, uh, what are you? And I said, well, I'm very much a giver. I take lots of people's problems on board, you know, because I like to solve the problems, but I love listening to people's journeys and learning from that. And she said, I'm going to give you a name of a book called The Journey by Brandon Bays, right? She said, read it because the, the area that you'll get difficulty in, she says, letting go right? Because you take people's problems on board, you've got to be able to let those go. And it's the same with the death. It's the same with sort of losing a job. You've got to be able to forgive. But she says, you've got to visualize it. She said, that's the thing that this book helps you with, is it takes you on that journey. And she's, and Brandon Bay says this, and she's got great videos online. And she says, you work on down through the problem. You kind of always meditate. You go down the different layers and you see the thing that caused you pain. So for instance, I had a I had some, you know, a job that I lost here and I felt very resentful towards that person that had let me go because they were doing it to so many people. And I thought, how could you do that to everyone? But I was keeping a hold of that and it was eating away inside me. And so what this taught me was accept the problem, visualize it and let it go. Physically push it away. And I thought, ah, it's never going to work. But I did it. And all my new age stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But she said what was really interesting, you'll get to one where you can't let it go. You can't push it away. She says, what you do at that stage is you move it across to the fire pit and you put it in the fire pit, ready to have a discussion later. And you gradually keep down the layers and you get to this dark place. And you know what the fear is, don't you? Everything's on the other side of fear. It's that dark hole. Are you going to jump through it? 
And I've never jumped through it yet, but a lot of people have and said that it has been the most serene experience ever that, that you go through and it's just white, it's light, it's airy. You're, you know, the weight's off your shoulders. But she said, if you can't jump through it, go back up through the layers, then zip off to the fire pit and go and have a conversation. And that's when she gave an example, which was fantastic, of her sister. When they were young, they were eight and ten, and they went down to the beach in California. And she went down with her best friend, and her best friend and her sister disappeared. And she felt all alone, and she ended up going home crying and saying that my sister had taken my best friend. And for 40 years, 50 years, she took that memory with her. She couldn't let go of that. She felt so upset. And then she had a conversation with her sister around the fire pit. I said, why did you do that to me? And she said, well, we didn't know. We went off to get you an ice cream. And when we came back, we had three ice creams and you'd gone. And instantly she said, I could let go of it. I had that conversation and I managed to let go of it. So I think you're on the money. You've got to be able to let go uh, of these experiences. There's, there's, a, uh, right, there, there's a book by a guy named uh, Colin Pipping who I think passed away last year, he wrote a book called Radical Forgiveness. And um, here's the precept behind it. So we're all spiritual beings having a human experience. Before we came into this existence, you and I and Percy and everybody we've ever had in our lives made a contract on the other side that we were going to be in each other's lives. We scripted it. Uh, maybe even so far as down to the conversation, right? And which you can't fathom, but can you fathom the universe? No, I mean, it's all unfathomable. And so when, when we come in, and if you believe this great, if not, it's a great rationalization tool. So we make these agreements, including suffering. Like you come in, you decide you're gonna be in a war and blown up, or you decide someone's gonna attack you and you're gonna get hurt. And you would say, well, why would you ever choose to get attacked and be hurt and live through it, right? And the answer is, I don't know. But if you can subscribe to the fact that you co-wrote the script, you co-wrote the script with the guy who fired you to be fired. So it's really kind of silly for you to resent him for acting out his role. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. It's, totally understand. It's really, it's really, really, this goes, this gets into quantum physics and things like that. And um, the last book that I want to tell you about now is, um, is called the power of the subconscious mind. And it's related to everything we've been talking about. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you about Anthony Robbins. <laughs> so uh, I've been in this kind of existential crossroads right? I, I've, I've been in downtown for 26 years. Uh, I, I, it's very parochial. I, I work here. I, I built a brand, you know, and um, even though I'm generally a buoyant, glass half full, silver lining kind of guy, uh, I have been really depressed about, about homelessness, about the encampments. And that's one of the reasons I'm you know, involved in that lawsuit is to try to make some incremental changes, right? But, um, you know, when I walk out into the public realm and I see people in bad, a bad state, um, I feel two things simultaneously. I feel empathy, understanding, and there, but for the grace of God, do I emotion, which is an intense emotion. And I feel abject rage, at the society, the courts, and the government for failing, and ultimately for the people that are on the streets taking away from my, you know, thing. Well, that's pretty exhausting. And I was having this trouble, and you know, before even COVID. And then COVID happens. And so, I, you know, I spent 26 years helping, you know, bring downtown back. And, uh, and part of me feels that these challenges are so daunting that maybe, maybe, this is jumping through the firewall, jumping into the fear. Maybe what God's trying to tell me is it's time for me to leave this stage. Maybe I'm supposed to sell my unit. Maybe I'm supposed to move to Northern Michigan where it's freezing cold and, and figure out what to do with the rest of my life with a little, some equity that I have here in my room. Well, I feel two things, David, about that. One is that would be running away and that would be a failure. But that's very egoic, isn't it? To think that I, I'm going to change everything. 
And the other thing is, it might be exactly the right thing to do. <laughs> and maybe, but I just don't know which. And I'm at a existential crossroads. So this, this, uh, the power of the subconscious mind book, and I was expressing these feelings to a friend of mine. So he gave me this book to help me get through my depression. And uh, Joseph Murphy is the author of the book. Very interesting guy. He was, uh, he, he immigrated to New York city from Ireland in the earlier part of the, the 1900s. He was born in the 1800s and he worked in a pharmacy as a clerk and then he became a pharmacist and then he owned a pharmacy and then he got interested in spirituality. He became an ordained minister and then he moved to California. Um, you may have heard of Amy Temple McPherson and other kind of, people that weren't within the constructs of the Catholic church or the Lutheran church, but they were kind of, uh, they were other kind of spiritualists. And he became one of those. He had a big following. And then he went to USC and got a PhD in psychology. And uh, what Joseph Murphy uh, argues in the book published in 1963 and still in print, right? He was kind of between Dale Carnegie and Anthony Robbins. And he's, he asserts that our subconscious minds are extraordinarily powerful, that whatever, to your point, if we think negatively, our subconscious makes sure that we have a negative experience. You ever heard you attracted to fear? Oh, totally. Well, similarly, uh, if you are aware that your words are very, very powerful, if you start catching yourself when you're being negative and pivot and, and you, in other words, you are your dominant thought, right? Mm -hmm. And visualization helps. So I have been practicing that in my life. And it's been helping me in tremendous ways. It happened to me yesterday. So I have someone who uh, owes me money. And uh, it's a few thousand dollars, which I could use right now. Uh, pandemics are not good for self-employed people, by the way. Especially ones involved in real estate. And so I've been visualizing him acknowledging the debt and agreeing to pay it. And I haven't called him, but finally, after visualizing this for quite some time, I, I called him and he's like, yeah, I got to pay that. Right. So, you know, that's, that's a good, that's a good thing. And so I'm going to start incorporating it into my life. A friend of mine, let me tell you what I do these days. So I'm a commercial real estate broker with a company called Major Properties. It's a, a small shop here in downtown LA, family owned, Luster family. And um, I had been working alone in my own office and doing some real estate, but not really a lot. Doing consulting, helping people navigate the city. Uh, I give tours of downtown that I'm kind of famous for giving. I had created a team building tour of downtown People come to their office in downtown and they go home. They know nothing about downtown. So I created a tour where I know, I know, I know 15,000 people in downtown, David, literally. So I call my friends and say, hey, hire me because we're going to kidnap your staff for four hours. Let them come in in the morning, deal with things till 10 o'clock. I get to get the bus, pick you up. And four hours later, everybody's going to be an expert on downtown. We will have had lunch and I will have taught them stress management techniques, right? And at the end of it, everybody's kissing and hugging me. Of course. Yeah. So those are my businesses. And when COVID happened, it blew it all up. People aren't making long-term leasing commissions for a restaurant space at the moment or office or retail. And I couldn't do my team building tours. So, so guess what I did? I pivoted and I created a Zoom experience, which I called adapt, uh, Adapting and Having Hope and Changing Times. And my purpose is to have a Zoom experience with a company and their players to uplift them from the stresses that we've been going through. And really what I'm doing is I'm trying to convince myself of it. <laughs> and, 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 and I get paid, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, but, you, that, but that's the first step, isn't it? You know, actions speak louder than words. Right. You, you have to go through, it's not just the visualization, you have to physically do something about it as well. Yeah. And, and that reinforces it. Yeah, you know? and so you're exactly right. So you have to act your way into right thinking. And, totally, and yeah. um, and we were talking about resentment a moment ago. And there's a great saying: "Is resentment is the poison we drink, hoping they will die." <laughs> this is just a reminder that you're listening to on another track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Hal Bastian of Hal Bastian Incorporated. He spent the last 40 years as a real estate agent in commercial sales, rebuilding downtown Los Angeles. 
Next, we talked to his long-forgotten Anthony Robbins book that sat on his bookshelf for 30 years. He's just rediscovered it. He also gives some perspective on religion. And did it really help him to get sober? And how do we cope to get to the other side? So I was talking to one of my associates, Marty, from Major Properties. And we were just talking about the challenges. Because, you know, you do have to be... Uh, you know, Pollyanna was somebody who's like unrealistically optimistic and we do need to acknowledge, you know, things are shitty right now, period. But then how, how do we cope to get to the other side? How do we get the, you know, I was, I started mowing lawns when I was 12 and I'm 60 and I've never stopped working even in the depths of my drug addiction and I'm tired. Right. But I'm not, <laughs> but you know, I live my life as a 25, I, I'm 60 years old, but I feel 25 because of my exercise and my diet. But, you know, I I don't have millions of dollars in the bank to retire. So, you know, I need to just continue working. So Marty and I are talking and he said, have you ever, you know, done any Anthony Robbins stuff? And like, no, I I bought a book of his 30 years ago, but I've never read it, you know, but it's in my house somewhere. It's in a box. I don't know. So um, the same day that I'm, I'm having this conversation with Marty about Anthony Robbins, it's a, a it's Awake of the Giant Within is the name of the book. I, I walk around my bed to a side. I have a nightstand. And there was a book kind of uh, askew. It wasn't lined up. And I, I'm a little obsessive compulsive about order. So, so control, right? You know, can't, can't, can't control my life as a young, you know, ten, less than 10 years old. So I want to control everything I can control, which is another show we can do. And, uh, and so I'm curious what book it is. And I pull it out. It's Awaken the Giant Within. So that's that's what I call a God shot. A God shot is God or, you know, higher power, whatever doesn't make your skin crawl. That's a God shot saying, you know what? There, there's synchronicity. There's people that are trying to help you here. I mentioned earlier that I'm not religious. And the reason I'm not religious is the whole thing about being gay and going straight to hell, right? Right. Okay. So, and, and then, and so the way that I've dealt with reconciling religion and spirituality spirituality is my connection to, I call it God. Okay. Mm -hmm. Spirituality is my direct line to God. There's no, nobody in between. There's no secretary or executive assistant. It's a direct line to God. Religion, I believe are different cultural ways of explaining this big mystery called the earth and all the creatures on it and the oceans and the people and the ants. And there's this great yearning to, to understand who made this. And in each culture, they came up with their story to explain it. And they all think they're right to the exclusion of the next one. But they're all right. They're all correct. And that's kind of what I believe. So I, I'm in a 12-step program that's very spiritual. And as most are. By the way, you could be an atheist and still be in a 12-step program. So they told me that God was going to help me remove my desire to, to drink. And he was going to solve my problem. And like... He did a horrible job on the gay project. One of my friends said in early sobriety, I hadn't even yet thrown out all my alcohol because I didn't believe I could do it. And he said, you know, get on your knees and ask God to remove that feeling of wanting to drink. And, and he said, if you're in a public place, you know, just bow your head and ask God to do it and do it over and over until it is. And then when the desire comes back, do it again. And I, uh, I, I was an isolative home drinker for the last number of years because I had had a, a driving while intoxicated DUI under the influence, driving under the influence. So I just stayed home and drank like a gentleman. And I hadn't yet thrown out the beer because I just thought I was going to have to go get more. So I got on my knees and I prayed for my obsession to drink and use to be removed. And it was. And it was a, a kind of a spiritual experience uh, of a very dramatic and burning bush. They called it burning bush variety. And then the desire came back and I did it again. And then it became a longer time in between desires until, you know, with, within a month, it was just gone, you know? And then so that's an interesting, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that's, it. That's, that's an interesting thought though, because if we kind of rationalize that a little bit, it's about making those new synapses in the brain, isn't it? those connections? Because, you know, we're very good. I, I, I'm going to generalize here and be a bit sexist, but men are very good at compartmentalizing. You know, that's what we're known for. Silos. 
Yeah. Yeah, you know, because that's how you deal with the stresses of life. That's how you deal with the deaths, you know, going to war. And and you, because otherwise, if you let that all roam around your brain, you, you do yourself in. I mean, you really would. So we compartmentalize. So I think if we were to explain it in a very kind of logical way, you're, you're creating those links between those different parts of the brain. So I'm going to talk to this part of the brain and we're going to have this logical conversation and we're going to figure out a strategy. And I think that's in some ways what we're doing. We're kind of rationalizing it, making it right, saying, okay, we can do this, saying that's okay. And if we fail, well, we'll go back and we'll try it again and we'll keep practicing until we get there. So that's rationalizing it. You know, it's making those connections in the brain. That's the, I think that's what's happening. Yeah, and there's something called neuroplasticity, which is yes. getting yeah. new, you know, going down a different street, right? You know, correct. And, yeah. and getting around. Yeah. Now, David, I just want to fucking graduate and move my tassel from one side of the mortarboard to the other and not have to work so goddamn hard. <laughs> but Playing you know what the and meditating is. and reading books and doing podcasts. <laughs> I mean, enough. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? It's like me going from one sales job to another. Oh, bloody hell. I got to start again. I got to learn new products. I got to go out there and start talking to people again. But you know, that's the rich tapestry of our lives, isn't it? You know, we may not think of it, but when we're lying there in our deathbed and we look back and we think, you know what? I didn't give up. I kept going. I kept doing what I wanted to do. I kept going on that journey. I kept going through that darkness of fear and I got to the other side and discovered it was actually great. It wasn't what I thought it was. And, and here's what I wanted to go back to as human beings. Don't we tell stories to cope with things? Don't, is that, isn't that how we convey our lives to other people? Yes. And Joseph Campbell, who was a, 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 he wrote a book called The Power of Myth. And he was a, he called it, it, Bill Moyer did an interview with Joseph Campbell, who studied all religions and things like that. And it was all about storytelling, right? And at the end of the day, um, this butler named Hal Bastian in downtown Los Angeles. I often think of myself in third person, frankly. Um, uh, I've been able to convince other people to join the journey of downtown Los Angeles to telling them stories. Originally, it was telling stories of what I thought was around the corner. And then I got enough people to believe my narrative and they did it and they were successful. And then it was no longer just my opinion or my assertion as a salesman. It was true. And I, I'm actually hosting a Zoom this week with a bunch of leaders uh, in the community. And it has to do with the existential crossroads that I keep referencing. And so the bottom line is that if I move to Michigan, I'm still going to be with me. And I'm going to find something else to get upset about, including, you know, six months of winter at least. And then my joke is one of my, one of my cousins will accidentally shoot me during deer season. Like, oops, you know, <laughs> kill the, kill the gay uncle. And, um, or the gay cousin. No, but he's good fun. The gay uncle. Come on. I know. Now, I'm a great, now I'm old enough to be great uncle. Hal. Um, <laughs> So, you know, or it could end really well. And I, I actually, one of the, one of the romanticisms about moving up there is that since I didn't have children in this lifetime, that I could help raise my grandnieces and nephews and whatever. And you know what? I could make that work. I could make it work. There'll be things I don't like. And then, or I could stay here. And so I got, my phone is blowing up. Oh no. Let's see. That's somebody else. They're just going to wake up. If you need to take it, take it. So, We've got um, plenty of time. <laughs> so I, uh, I use the word so too much. It's kind of like, okay, and you know. I'm doing a Zoom with many leaders in the community that I'm hosting to say, and it's called Recovery from COVID-19. It's all about thought leadership. Thought right. leadership. And we are a dominant thought, just like Joseph Murphy says. So I'm going to talk about to the group, listen, here's where I am. I've been thinking about running away, but for today I'm staying. And, um, and by the way, when Mr. Downtown thinks about leaving downtown, you got a problem, Houston, <laughs> or in the, you know, Los Angeles, you know, and uh, I, I don't like admitting it, but it's okay. I can take the power out of it. And I'm going to identify the challenges that we have, accept the challenges and say, what can we do as individuals to 
change the narrative so we could think positively and get to the other side and get to positivity again. And again, I'm just really trying to convince myself, <laughs> you know? And that's part of the journey, isn't it? Because it's to gain confidence, you have to do that. You know, it's it, like my dad used to tell me, he was ex-military, regimental sergeant major in the in the British military. And he always, he always just talked to himself in the mirror. He would come in and catch him at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. What you do, Dad? You know, in the Scots voice, don't, uh, nothing, nothing, you know. But he always said in later years, you've got to convince yourself first. You've got to have that conversation with yourself in the mirror. Because once you convince yourself, you can convince other people. That's right. And a, and a lot of stuff that I'm reading right now all, you know, points to it. You know, the, the different, all the different books that people read. I mean, I don't know how many thousands of self-help books there are, but if you did have the ability to, to read them all and to amalgamate them and distill them, um, it comes down to some basic precepts, right? Which is you are what you think. You know, Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Right. Well, I was going to say is getting back to the spiritual income thing is I'm not the richest guy in downtown, but I'm I'm the wealthiest spiritual. I'm a billionaire because through the work that I've done, I've got to affect thousands of lives and millions of experiences, literally, like I've helped to recruit a lot of restaurants to downtown and those, you know, that helped to create income for the owners of the buildings, construction for, you know, architects and builders and building supplies and there's employees and food purveyors and people having wonderful memories and experiences. And uh, people are often worried about, you know, what is their point in life or what's their, in, in political science terms, it's called a raison d'etre, a reason to exist. And so my reason to exist is to been to positively affect other people. And I hope, I hope that I will positively affect some of the listeners to this, uh, to this podcast. I think you do. And I think it's the warmth and the giving back that you're doing, you know, as I, Oh, I have a great expression. Somebody told me, you know, when you've got a cash register, it's great to go cha-ching and take the money out, but you've got to put the money back in again. You've got to put the cash back into the register. And I think what you've done is you've, you've, you don't have one register. You have a dozen registers that you're putting money into. And I think, you know, one of the lovely things about it is, isn't it great to see people successful off of the little acorn that you planted the little idea that you kind of help them just to get launched to launch that little boat and that boat's gone somewhere in life you know and that's a great feeling you can't even put a price on that you really can't you really can't and you know the the um the challenge though and this is like a a daily one is Mm -hmm. is the ego wants to beat his chest and say you know aren't i terrific and then and, and I think it's okay to be proud of good things that you've done without being arrogant, right? Without being a narcissist. That's the hard thing. Now, listen, if I were a wallflower, you know, and I had this like, uh, you know, personality that was somewhat passive, I could never have done what I can, what I've helped to do, what I've helped to do. Um, but I have to be careful that that when that personality is so strong that it doesn't alienate people. It's a fine line. I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. And I think that's where I've talked to my podcast before uh, between the European approach to things and the North American approach to things is that when you come here, it's very much in your face and I'm good at what I do and I'm going to be the best and I'm the big I am. And of course, that would never float in a different culture. So it's like, it's a cultural thing, you know, and I think a lot of people are used to that type of approach and you're either on the bandwagon or you're not. Whereas... I think ultimately when you go to different cultures, it's a bit bombastic. It's a bit in your face. It's not how you do business. So how do you convince people in different cultures? Well, you do it by example. Mm-hmm. You do it by support. You empathize. You you have the emotional support going. So you lift other people up in front of you. You know, that's what you do. That's what you're, but you're doing that anyway. Yeah. Sorry, uh, well, um, it, it's, it is, you know, I'm a talker, right? And, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's more important to listen. <laughs> I, 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 I'm coming into that now. I've done some soliloquies today in this dialogue where I just, you know, <laughs> talk and I don't even let you ask questions because like, I anticipate these questions. Well, but that's what's wonderful about you because I think you've lived rich, a very rich life and you have a lot of emotional intelligence going on there, a hell of a lot going on there because you're feeling you're anticipating, your antennae work, you know, you connect with people. 
And that didn't just come from practice. That came from innateness in you, something that was born in you. Yeah. It's, it's like having a good physique genetically, but you go to the gym, right? So I, I exercise my spiritual muscles every day. Yeah, you know, definitely. Uh, during during the, uh, the, sh- the shutdown, um, I live in a five-story building. It's called the Douglas Building, if anybody wants to Google it. And um, it's beautiful. It's made of masonry exterior. And it's got wood floors. And, and uh, it's five stories, but the first, the first floor is like two, effectively two stories tall. So there's f- uh, five flights, five full flights from the street level to the top floor. It's an old office building, like I've been talking about. So I, uh, on June 25th, I've been mostly walking and doing push-ups and sit-ups and other kinds of exercise because the gym has been shut down. Uh, And on June 25th, on my 60th birthday, I decided to use my staircase as an exercise machine. And I just did it. And I went down to the bottom and I walked to the fifth floor. And when, when you get to the fifth floor, you're, you know, you're a little winded. And, but then you walk down, which is your recovery period. And by the time you get to the bottom, you have enough energy to get to the top. Uh, and I've done that. Uh, I've done that, you know, every, every day, uh, including the big number of the 12 years and five months. And, and it, it, it's, it's equivalent of uh, 56 flights up and 56 down. So it's a pretty big building and I get enormously, uh, enormous amount of exercise out of it. When I started, it took me 40 minutes, David, and now it takes me about 32. And I have this body and, um, I don't have the best body in the world, but it's pretty darn good. I think I'm probably, when I, when I do go to the gym, I do weights and things like that. My upper body is gone. Hopefully I'll have muscle memory. Um, but I've got this, I've got this body that God gave me and I exercise it to make it fit and healthy and muscular. And I have the ability to communicate with people, which is God given. And I work at it to build my empathic muscle and my connectivity muscle. And if there's one thing that I learned when I shared that day with that housing tour is that when a salesman says, I'm going to show you the great, the good and the ugly and when the salesman is vulnerable, people believe the salesman. And the reason they, they believe the salesman is he's telling the truth. He, she, or they, depending on what pronoun you want these days. Right. And that the most empowering thing in the world is, uh, you know, honesty and, and vulnerability. It's made me extraordinarily strong. I couldn't have summed that up more than myself. And I, again, I've talked to my podcast before about being vulnerable. You know, if you're a little bit vulnerable in front of your staff, your team, good close friends, mm-hmm. it's amazing what you get back in droves. You know, it's amazing how people connect. Yeah. And, you know, sorry, I'm just going to make one other point and sorry to interrupt you, but um, I've noticed that what's interesting about the young people of the, today, the millennials and, and the young people who get involved with the YouTubes and the podcasts is amazing how many of those are openly vulnerable publicly. Yeah. And amazing how it drives human beings to communicate more openly, you know, and thank you for that. You know, like you were saying earlier, somebody listened to your story and they thanked you because they managed to get clean. Right. And I see a lot more of that happening and it just fills me with hope because there's so much negativity towards younger people not being like us baby boomers and, you know, working hard and a day's work and a day's pay and you bring up 2.5 kids and you have the wife and, uh, you know, the, the house in suburbia. But what they're doing is they're reinventing, I think, the relationship in current COVID situation to be one quite a positive one, I feel. Yeah, I think so, I think so too. Um, I, I, ha- I have a friend, uh, a gay friend, who uh, says it's it's not about whether the glass is half full or half empty. It matters what kind of glass is it. Is it Waterford, Lalique, Baccarat, Steuben? <laughs> He's obviously got good taste. Yeah. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, listen, I, I could talk for hours, and we really have, but, and I mean, I've got so many questions to ask you, but I wanted to dive down into something and just change tack slightly. What the hell 
it, like what actually made you want to go into politics for god's sake <laughs> uh, well listen this is the vulnerable part so so i uh um i we had for for one of those 15 council districts right the the uh the incumbent was termed out and so there were a couple candidates who were running for for the the spot and i went to a candidate forum and neither one of them was like serving up any kind of food that I wanted. And I said, half kiddingly, well, maybe I should run. And somebody lit up and said, yeah, you should. So I decided to run for city council member. And I assembled a team of people and consultants and I raised money. And uh, I'm usually a micromanager. And I, I usually, if I'm like Ronald Reagan, trust and verify. But my one of the processes is you have to get um, a, a number of signatures to get on to the uh, to the ballot, and so my political consultant said, "You you should not of registered voters right within the district," and uh, he indicated to me my job was to raise money and I should be on the phones and we were going to hire people a company to go out and do this kind of ministerial thing because the people didn't have to know you. They just had to sign it, but they needed to be registered voters. And, and I said, I let go. And I never asked him, well, what does that mean? How many do we have today? And then when it all said and done, a lot of the signatures didn't count. I didn't meet the threshold and I was knocked out of the race. And that was the worst professional defeat and failure of my life. And, um, Shame on him for dropping the ball and shame on me for not following up. Right. And, and you know, those things that look bad, <laughs> I don't know the current, the, the person who got that job now has to deal with running a city with no money. Yeah. Would you really want to be in that position? It's a, yeah. So, yeah. so what really, what really motivated me is I kind of felt like I had done all the real estate stuff and the city building I'd done for the private sector. And I, I thought that I should get into politics and, and try to affect things from that way. And, um, and it, it didn't happen this time. I don't even know if I would do it again, because when, when you're, when you're running for office, there's no such thing as privacy. No, there isn't. You're totally, um, yeah. And, and people want to dig up, you know, stuff about your humanity. That's one of the reasons though, that I ran those. I'm so open about my humanity. It's like, what are they going to dig up? Well, that's it. What can they dig up? You know, you've been pretty candid and honest today. Yeah, I know. Hey, there was a couple of things that I uh, I wanted to share with you. Uh, yeah, sure. That, that are, you know, I'm I'm always about hope, right? And uh, yeah, an opportunity for redemption. Uh, and and also just giving back. I, I wanted to let your listeners know um, that I did a I, I have a series on YouTube. So if they look at my name, Hal H A L Bastian B A S T I N. If they look up Hal Bastion on YouTube, I, I did a bunch of videos about downtown Los Angeles that your listeners might find entertaining. And um, so that's what, that's something I wanted to. And, and I just wanted to mention those very briefly, actually. I can relate to them because it's something I wanted to do very similar to what you did was to go down to Edmonton and do some similar things, you know, because they were very entertaining, very informative. And again, your personality came across. I love the one that you did about the Macy's building, the block, and also about the artist as well, which was phenomenal, you know, on the side of buildings. And uh, so you've, have you stopped doing those or was that yeah, something you're going to continue a, on? Here's what happened. Um, there, we had a local, uh, well, he was in all of California. Uh, his name is Huell, H-U-E-L-L, Huell Hauser. And uh, he was a, a news anchor and, and he was a reporter and he was a news anchor. And when he, I think he was 40 years old, he got let go as a, uh, from the reading desk and uh, Hauser's H-O-W-S-E-R. And so he was 40 years old. There's ageism, right? In uh, broadcasting. So he's out of a job and he reinvented himself and he decided to go around talking to people about uplifting good things. And then he, he gave the show for free to public television so that people would see it. And he, it, the, the program was called California gold. And his business model is he raised corporate sponsorships to pay himself and his production staff. Uh, and, and that's what he did. But the, the sponsors had no editorial control. 
right? Okay. Uh, which is very scary. And he wanted to do a series on downtown LA. So Tom Gilmore, my boss of the old bank district, was a friend of Hewell's. He introduced us when I was over at the business improvement district. And uh, I, I mentioned that I know people. So I raised a quarter of a million dollars for Hewell uh, from you know my friends. And he did a whole series on downtown LA, which people should watch as well. So uh, Hewell passed away in 2013. After he died, I called Ryan Morris, who was one of his producers. And I said, I'm not Hewell Hauser, but I like to tell stories. And I'd like to do a Hewell Hauser style show about downtown. And, he's, and I said, will you do it? And he said, no. Well, anyway, we ended up doing it. And I retained him as a consultant and I started off really, really strong. And I got a lot of money um, to pay him and pay myself. And, but I couldn't get viewership. It was, it was internet based on YouTube. And I, I just couldn't bring myself to go to people to ask them to sponsor me when people weren't seeing the show. So I decided to do really the next indicated thing, which was hit my 401k because I didn't want to, it wasn't enough to retire and I didn't want to lose Ryan's talent and I didn't want to give up. Got you. It's a very bad business model. <laughs> so, so between that and being depressed about my mom's death, you know, I basically, you know, killed that money. But, um, uh, you know, now, now today it would probably be a million dollars, you know, so I, whatever. That's not the play that I wrote before I came into this lifetime. And, uh, and so I'm not in production on it anymore, but the body of work is still, I think, pretty darn good. It's in terms of the quality and about the kind of um, the way it's been put together, very well, very well done. You know, coming from a broadcasting background, mainly radio, I can see you know how you managed to get value into that program and the way that you interacted with the guests and your personality was really the thing that drove it along. That really great interaction with people and people warmed to you. You know, that was the lovely thing about it. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that it's uh, kind of fun to be Hal Bastion is I never know what he's going to say. You know, and, and he, he cracks me up. I mean, some of the stuff that comes out of his mouth yeah. and, uh, and that's why I never get bored. Cause it's just, it's, it's funny. And I think we have to laugh at our, you know, laugh at ourselves. Well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't take yourself terribly, terribly seriously. And that's the nice thing about it. You're in having a bit of fun there yeah. and you can see that, you know, and people come along for the ride, which is wonderful. You see that happening. Yeah. And right. And I'm, as you could tell, I'm a fierce, fierce self-promoter. So if people are interested in, in me, they can go to howbastion.com. Or if they would like to write me, they can email me at hal at howbastion.com or howbastion at gmail.com. Or they could find me on Google on the internet and um, always happy to talk to people. It, it, you know, maybe I could sell a Zoom team building experience. Oh, the, the, the Zoom calls that I'm doing for team building, which I have mentioned, mm -hmm. um, the bottom line is at the end of the call, they feel better than at the beginning of the call. And then I, I tell them, I, I tell them all these strategies I use to get through life and I have a written follow-up with a reading list and I encourage them to, right now they can't do it at the coffee pot or the water cooler. So I encourage them to all experiment with these different methodologies for dealing with life and having hope and doing stuff. Um, you know, I make a joke out of it. I said, I had to start doing that when I couldn't drink or shoot up anymore. So, <laughs> you know, and they laugh and I'm like, no, really, you know? And, uh, so I, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm going to be um, doing that. Lastly, TikTok. I was hearing people talk about TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. What the hell is TikTok? I'm going to have to join TikTok Anonymous. It's my next 12-step program because it's fascinating. And I, I came across, I've met people in, in all kinds of different walks of life, people that are suffering from Alzheimer's, people that um, they're, they're cooking shows, uh, somebody who's dying of cancer. And I've, I've created personal relationships with some of these people. But I, I came across a psychiatrist, David, the other day, who talked about motivation and procrastination. And she said, most of us, when we have something we need to do, we're waiting for the motivation to do it. She said, exactly wrong. Just start doing it. Just start doing it. And then You'll, the motivation will come. And, and even though I'm a pretty good salesman, sometimes it's hard to make the first call or the first email or the first text. And then, you know, once I do it, I'm like, what the hell? 
what you know and and that's you know you act in other words you act yourself right into right thinking and this the number one way to come out of depressions is just to get in action and stop laying around focusing on it and help other people and play with your dog and um it doesn't mean you have to deny it it's just when you're in when when you're in action then instead of sedating it with food i've you know i've sedated with food too um you just do something something positive and um a year ago i'm 510 even though i'm really fit exercise why why sometimes i sedate with food right and the thing of food is you can't abstain so so a year ago i was 2210 on on a 510 body that's too heavy for me um and then in november i was 200 pounds which was an improvement especially during covid and then i'm like oh i want to lose some more more weight so i uh, i have to get in a position of pain and discomfort my clothes were too tight uh, and I discovered uh, an app, which is very helpful to tracking calories and everything else. And so on November 16th, I weighed 200. And to, today, I weigh 183. So this is a really good fighting weight for me. And, and there's many people listening to this podcast that might say, oh, my God, you know, I'm heavy. It's always been that way. I can't change. Baloney. You can change, but you got to make a decision to change. You got to get uncomfortable enough. And then, you know, I, I love hypnotherapy that helps me and cognitive therapy and talking to friends and helping others. So I think it's, it's all about action when it comes down to it. Now that I think of it, if we wanted to summarize uh, our talk today, it's be happy, right? Uh, help be kind, help other people and be grateful. And if we do those things, we have a chance. And thanks for letting me be with you today. That's all right. Well, I love the story about the four-legged stool. That really sums it up very, very well indeed. Listen, I'm going to ask you one more question before we go, because this is a really important one. And I always ask all my guests this. If, um, if you're 18 again, what would you tell yourself? Stop taking yourself so damn seriously. There you are. <laughs> well, Hal, I've absolutely adored talking to you today. And you know something? I want to make this a regular thing. I would love to have you back on as a guest. And I've said this to a couple of my guests in the past, but, you know, there's so much knowledge there that we've got to share it. And I think we should share it with the world, not just with LA. You can't keep it for right. LA. Well, I'm, ha I'm, happy. I'm happy to share it, and I'm happy to um, help spread some positivity and some management tools uh, to, to Edmonton and around the world. Well, I imagine you're thinking that's the end, but no, we've got an update. There's been a massive turnaround in what the LA city and the county have had to do for Skid Row. And because Hal is passionate about this, I want him to tell you in his own words, the update. So here he is before we finish the show. So the update, David, as of um, April 24th, 2021 on our LA Alliance lawsuit, uh, is we had a great win this week. The federal district judge, his name is David, middle initial O, Carter. So you can look it up. And there was an article in the LA Times issued an order that the city and county of Los Angeles create shelter for every person within our Skid Row area by October of 2021. Fantastic. It's, it, 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 it is. And he, he starts out talking about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War and you know, all this time, 158 years later, we're still suffering from systemic racism. And he just calls it out, calls it what it is. Because, you know, these aren't, you know, white Beverly Hills housewives who are on the streets. It's predominantly African-American people, Latino people, and other people too, but it's a huge proportion of uh, African-American people. This is not just pushing the en envelope of judicial power, it's ripping it wide open. And not surprisingly, both the city and county have uh, uh, objected to his order. And, and then what he'll do is probably deny both of them. And then it'll go to the Ninth Circuit of the federal court and they will say, so we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. So it's going to be a tracker. But the, the bottom line is the apple cart has been knocked over and the apples are everywhere. And so that's, that's the great disruptor that's forcing the issue. Uh, even, even if the, the court limits his power, that's forcing the government to deal with it instead of hiding behind, the, you know, this mask of, oh, you know, you're making it too hard. The city, the cities, they're talking about um, 
the mayor was talking the other day about dedicating over a billion dollars to this for the coming year. And so the judge said, great, let's put that in an escrow account because basically I don't trust how you're going to spend it. But that's really good. He's very forward thinking and he clearly yeah. needs to, you, know, you need to sort the problem out. What does this mean for LA? I think this is the m- most important decision relating to race and, uh, you know, human rights since Brown versus the Board of Education in the 1950s. You know, wow. you know it's a big deal. Very significant. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very big deal. And, and, you know, the idea is to, uh, is to say it's not okay for people to rot in the streets, you know? And it's not okay, and it's against our human rights, and it's been going on too long, and we're going to stop it. We've we've all been buying into this false narrative that it's insolvable. We sent men to the moon in 1969. We have rovers on Mars right now. We can fix this if we decide to do it, right? And people say, well, who's going to pay for it? Well, when does that ever stop the government from doing anything, right? <laughs> We just print up a little more money and go a little more in debt. So what do you see the long-term ramifications of this? Because this could go worldwide, couldn't it? Yeah, it's starting with Skid Row, this order, and then it's going to expand beyond you know, beyond that. Well, listen, I wish you the best luck in this. And uh, hopefully by October, they do what they say they're going to do. Let's keep yeah. our fingers crossed. Wasn't Hal just a great guest? Fantastic wealth of information and somebody who's very determined to look after other people in his hometown. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was a little bit different from the usual. But what you can take away from it is, you know, don't feel as if you can't achieve anything in this world. Hal's just proved it. And after 27 years, he played a significant part in bringing the population up from 18,000 people to over 85,000 people in downtown LA. And that's no mean feat. Please join me next week for episode 14 of On Another Track with me, David Wilson. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated, keeping us safe on the roads of North America.